When I struggled the most is when I shifted my focus from paying attention to what Jesus was revealing and what Jesus was inviting me to share. And I started getting pulled into people's complaints and I got pulled into measuring things and wondering how we were doing. That's when I really lost my way. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is retired pastor and Renovare ministry team and board member, Mimi Dixon. As we prepare for our upcoming pastor's retreat, I wanted to sit down with our main speaker, Mimi Dixon, and explore a little of her wisdom on ministry and what really matters. I think you'll find her words and vision quite compelling. Mimi, there's an article in Christianity Today about pastors that you had mentioned to me. Could you share a little about that? The article came out in November of 2021, and it was based on some research that George Barna has been doing. Of course, he's real interested, particularly during the pandemic, on how pastors are experiencing this period of time. And Barna put out a sobering statistic that I think it was 37 or 38 percent of pastors are considering leaving the ministry, uh, just a little bit over a full third. And it went through and talked about the stresses that pastors are experiencing. And um, we really understand that with COVID and with isolation and limiting numbers of people that can gather together, many churches during the last two years now, people stopped coming to worship. And then you are trying to figure out, and especially congregations who had never streamed worship or recorded worship, and pastors preaching to empty congregations when uh, most of us recognize sermons to be kind of a dialogue. You're watching people's body language. You're looking at faces. You're responding to people nodding or, or people looking down. And it's, it isn't really a one-way conversation at all. And now that feedback was removed. And we also understand that worship is embodied, that we come together physically as well as intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. And all of those things were separated from one another in ways that we did not really fully understand at first. So pastors in trying to respond to the situation as it's emerged are in a position where they're struggling to deal with their own sense of having to begin to learn how to re- how to relate to people virtually. And if there are some people who are coming, how to relate to those people, how to be present to members of your congregation that you're not seeing on a regular basis, reaching out to people. How do you maintain community in the midst of a pandemic? And this is not, of course, a problem that is uh, unique to pastors. But the expectation uh, that a pastor carries the responsibility to shepherd this group of people and be present to them for such a time as this has been difficult. The other thing, Nathan, that I think has exacerbated the problem is um, how long it's been. 
I remember early on, you probably do too, in March of 2020, when people were saying, oh, we're looking at maybe um, as long as six weeks or maybe two months. And it, it's sort of like a marathon. You know how, you know, you got 26.2 miles to go. You've been training. So you know what you need to do, how to pace yourself. So people pace themselves for that kind of window. And then it became like a marathon after marathon after marathon after marathon, one right after the other, depleting energy, raising questions of how you maintain who you are and you keep people together and cared for in that kind of context. So we're now into two years. And in that time, people began meeting together a little bit more. But now there's there are issues with rising infection rates and that kind of thing. And then beginning to wonder, is this the way it's always going to be? So redefinition of role. What does it look like to pastor a church in these days? What is expected of us? How are we present to people we do see? How are we present to people that we're not seeing what does it look like now? When we're afraid, we can be kind of prickly. Roy Carlyle put me on to research that's being done by a man who works with the British organization, and he started doing research on what is gathering people, what's pulling people together right now, what is the center of gravity in, during COVID, especially the last couple of years. And he said it isn't political identification. It isn't shared religious belief. He said what he's discovered, the thing that pulls people together the most is complaint. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be complaint about the same thing. So when we're disoriented, when we're uncertain, when we're in a time when it is like a, the landscape is changing, what does it look like now and I believe that people are looking to pastors to understand that and to give direction. And that puts a lot of pressure on people who themselves are adjusting to a lot of transition. That would be my read on what we're experiencing right now. And I suspect this is not a new problem. It just is new challenges and it's been exasperated the last yeah, few yeah. years. You learned a lot in your years as a pastor. What are some things that you think might be helpful for pastors in this season? That's a really good question, Nathan. And I think it, it gets down to the core of what is difficult for people, what, what people in ministry positions are struggling with right now. And that is a question of what exactly is our call? I have to say that back in the day when I was in seminary, and I think that this that the shift in the emphasis has been changing in recent years. But when I was in, trained in seminary, I and this is not the language they used at all. But what I was being trained to do is to manage a successful franchise, <laughs> and the way that you manage your place in the franchise, your store, your church, your congregation, was measured in the same way that a restaurant would measure their effectiveness or, or their saleability, their attractiveness. 
you paid attention to return customers, you paid attention to new customers, you paid attention to um, how many people were present at any given time, you paid attention to your productivity, your income level, you know, are you breaking even, are you doing all right, are you going to survive, um, is the wait staff happy, do you have a good, do you have a good chef that can offer a variety over time that's going to be attractional and keep people coming back and interested, engaged. And the so same I really things that Jesus was working on in his ministry. Right? <laughs> see, that's you just put your finger on it. <laughs> I don't see Jesus caring about that stuff. I do see the disciples being concerned about those things. Um, really wanting this to be successful, wanting the word to get out there, wanting to market it, wanting him to gain traction. And um, I, I think about, for example, John chapter four, they have, it says that they're, they're teaching and making disciples. So as far as the disciples were concerned, they're in Judea, the crowds are coming, Jesus is the plenary speaker, they're baptizing people, they have courses on discipleship, and the people who are being converted are, are attending those classes. That really looks successful. And one day Jesus gets up and he gathers his stuff and he walks away and they say, where are you going? You're on at nine o'clock. The crowds are already gathering. Jesus says, oh, I'm going to Galilee. Well, nothing happens in Galilee. <laughs> and they say, but, but, and Jesus says, suit yourselves, I'm going. So I imagine Jesus kind of being out there in front a little bit by himself and the 12 disciples following, they're kind of talking quietly among themselves. If we can get them to turn around and go back, I think we can pick up that the crowds won't have left yet. Maybe people don't know he's gone yet. They get to the border of Samaria, and they and Jesus goes straight into Samaria, another bad idea. And he sits down at a well. It's the middle of the day, it's hot, and all 12 of the guys go into town for lunch to go get lunch. How many people does it take to go pick up lunch? I think they had some talking to do. <laughs> they gathered around complaint. <laughs> yes, they did. Yep, they did. And I'm sure there were a variety of aspects to that, and they needed to talk about it. They come back later, and they see Jesus talking to this woman who's sitting there. Oh, man, that's strike three. And then Jesus says to them, don't you see the harvest? Don't you see? So he's willing to leave the crowd, the successful, in order to come and encounter one individual who was broken. And then she, of course, leaves. She goes back to town. She doesn't bring back McDonald's. She brings back the entire town. And while they're coming, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Pray for the workers. So Jesus was, um, the way that he thought about what he was there to do, the way he trained his disciples was not to run franchises, wasn't to go out and plant a bunch of churches, but to be present among people people that were struggling, people that were lost, people that were looking for life, people that were desperate. Those are the people we would stop and talk to. So I look at, at the life of Jesus and what he was doing, and I look at the way that I was trained to think about ministry and how I was trained to, me to measure whether or not I was being faithful as a pastor. I measured it in the way that you would measure anything you do in this culture. And Jesus was completely outside of that spectrum. So it was interesting to me to, um, to say, well, what was Jesus listening to? 
What was Jesus tuned into? And uh, your dad, Richard, really helped me with celebration of discipline because what he helped me see is what Jesus was doing that enabled him to keep his priority on what God was saying and telling him and a place where he was infused with the strength that he needed to carry on a demanding ministry. So he would withdraw, he would be filled, he would reach out. It was like ocean waves. He would withdraw, he would refill, and then he would reach out. And he was demonstrating that to the disciples. And he was saying, follow me, follow me into this rhythm, and you will begin to see what God sees. You will experience the presence of God in what you're doing. So you become present to what God is doing rather than trying to make something happen or stir up curiosity. So um, that's that was really a, a powerful image for me and began to shape the way that I thought about myself as a pastor trying to emulate Jesus, to, to literally follow not just what he said, but to follow the, what he was doing. And that became transformative to me. I think that's what saved me. Mm-hmm. I didn't experience burnout. Um, I didn't think about leaving. That isn't to say that I didn't look around at those measurements. We're marinated in these measurements. This is the way, at least as Western believers, as Western Christians, we have certain ways of measuring what it looks like if you're doing it right. What What's your expectation? Well, revival. I can't say that we experienced the revival that I was looking for. So I was, I struggled with discouragement too. I had to regularly look at it, know what it was, and then turn around and move away from it. And I didn't do it by myself. I traveled for about two thirds of my ministry with a group of, there were eight of us and we weren't all the same denomination, but we would meet regularly. We called ourselves the company of the failed. Because oh, other pastors we, that you Yeah, other with. pastors. Mm-hmm. The company we of the failed, all, that was your name? The company of the failed, that's what we called ourselves. <laughs> I love it. Because we weren't building the, you know, seeing this huge um, result to our ministry in terms of numbers and buildings and all that. What the Lord was calling us into was a deep commitment to being formed ourselves in the character of Christ. So we encouraged one another in our personal disciplines. And we sought to bring that same pattern to the people that we served. You know, that wasn't really very popular. Come and die isn't a very popular, (laughs) it doesn't sell very well. Come and die. Come and give up everything to follow Jesus. But what convinced people, Nathan, this is the thing that was, uh, that I came to see, and it took me a long time to displace my expectations with this and to allow this new realization to come in. I saw lives being changed. I saw people who... Um, I'd known for a lot of years who had struggled deeply with some things, experienced transformation. They they became a different sort of person, as Dallas Willard would say. Um, kindness displaced prickliness. 
people became more and more curious about others and not just um, desirous of meeting their own needs or having their own concerns be the only thing that uh, anyone was looking at or thinking about. We became a community. And furthermore, here was the other thing that was very surprising to me. All of this was such a surprise. I just, I didn't know what to expect. I really didn't. But as people began engaging the disciplines, and at first there was lots of, I don't have time to do that. I don't, you know, that's for really spiritual people, and I'm not a very spiritual person. But as they began seeing people around them who were engaging the disciplines and and entering into a, a full understanding of discipleship to Jesus, really following his example, listening to what he says, starting to read the scriptures. As people saw their friends begin to change, that's what convinced them that there was something real to this. Furthermore, and this is what I was going to say, the thing that surprised me the most is that it changed the way people saw the other people in their lives that weren't at the church the way that they handled that other mom who was so difficult to manage, who was in the carpool or whatever. It changed the way that people saw other people, and it changed their point of view, and it changed the way that we thought about particularly people that needed advocacy and needed someone to come alongside and were in a tough place. Compassion began to emerge. I really didn't know to expect any of that. I felt like I had a front row seat to something that was happening, and I was part of it. I certainly wasn't creating it or managing it or telling people that this is what it looks like. It just happened. And this happened after you let go of the franchise mentality. Boy, I sure wish I could say I let go of it. I I guess it's like struggling with some kind of addiction. You don't really get away from it. You learn to recognize when it's banging on your door and you don't open the door, not even an inch, because you know that if it rushes in, it'll take over the house. I had such a desire to be effective for the kingdom of God, to be attractional, to be contagious. That was the way that I understood it and thought about it. So when it didn't seem to me that this was contagious, when it didn't seem to me that what was happening here was meaningful enough for people to invite their friends to come, which I thought is how it would grow, I did take responsibility for that. I struggled with that a lot. I thought, what's the matter with me? Why am I not able to communicate in a way that that can be received by people and the result will be revival. I assumed that anyone who met Jesus would be smitten by him. I did not allow for any other response in my mind. I just couldn't imagine seeing Jesus and not being overwhelmed and not putting down everything to follow him. I, I just, I couldn't imagine the possibility of that response. I remember one time I was praying about this and apologizing. Oh, 
I'm so sorry, Jesus, you gave me this congregation. And I, I, you know, it's an also ran. It's, it's, as your dad would say, a marginal failure on the ecclesiastical, you know, scale Scoreboard. of measurement. Yeah. Scoreboard, right. <laughs> Scoreboard. <laughs> it's, it's just clear as a bell, this thought came into my mind. Have you ever read the New Testament? And I thought about it and thought, well, I guess Jesus wasn't very successful either. Not really. <laughs> You know, he, um, and then the next thought that came into my mind is people get to choose. That's free will. People get to choose. And that is not your responsibility. That's between me and that person. So I, I think Jesus just wanted me to understand that we live our faith as openly as we can. We share our experience. We offer the invitation of God and the longing of God to be with each of us as individuals and among us as a people that he loves it when we gather together. And he's always going to be there, always. He's always going to be there, as, we, as we're told in Matthew uh, 18, that when two or more even gather in his name, that's, that's church, that's community. And he loves sitting in on those conversations and sipping coffee and smiling and enjoying us. I just didn't know that's what it meant to be a pastor, is to welcome Jesus and to welcome others and to be as transparent as possible and to realize that people get to choose. How does the phrase first things play into mm. all this for you? Yeah, that's that was I just wish I could say I knew these things earlier and <laughs> didn't have to scrabble around at the weeds for so long before I had some clarity of what this is and what it isn't. When Jesus talked about the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, that's first things. That's life in the kingdom. It's, it's following Jesus around. It's learning to follow his gaze. It's being responsive to what he's paying attention to. That's first things. Second things is the wide variety of ways that we live out the kingdom of God and share the love of God and sprinkle gladness and joy and laughter into the world. So first things is to keep my eyes on Jesus. Second things is, is the other things I do. I appreciate you asking that question because when I struggled the most is when I shifted my focus from paying attention to what Jesus was revealing and what Jesus was inviting me to share. And I started getting pulled into people's complaints and I got pulled into measuring things and wondering how we were doing that's when I really lost my way. And uh, C.S. Lewis famously told his friend who was in a struggling place in his life, he said, he quoted the first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, seek it first, and then all these things shall be added to you from Matthew 6. He told his friend, if you put first things first, second things are thrown in. If you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. 
<laughs> the periods of time when I came closest to losing that focus for myself and as a result for the congregation was when I got those out of order, when I started making um, how things were going, my measurement, when I started putting my focus on trying to make people happy. It was like whack-a-mole. Every time you solved one problem, another one would pop up, and then another, and then another, and then it got faster and faster and faster until I was reacting all of the time. One of the things that I've learned about leading in the character of Christ is that when you, if you come across, you've probably had this experience, you come across a group of people and they're all staring at, up at something. Well, your natural response is to turn and look at what they're looking at. You follow their gaze. If as a leader, I'm always looking around trying to figure out the next fire to put out, that's where the focus of the congregation turns. If I keep my focus on Jesus and don't allow myself to get pulled into the worrying about second things and measuring things and trying to fix things, then people will follow my gaze. Now, I'd like to say I did that easily and naturally. That was a discipline. I had to put disciplines in place every day where I'd spend time. I sought to do what Jesus did, to go and sit with the Father and say, what's on your mind today? Where are you going today? Can I come with you? Help me learn to follow your gaze and not be looking all over at the place while you're wanting me to look at what you're looking at. It was a discipline of focusing my thoughts and my heart on paying attention to where God is present right here in this moment, in this conversation, as this frustrated person is telling me what they think I need to do to sort stuff out. Jesus is there with me. I came into the room with him. He's really the one that's engaged in conversation with them. I'm listening in. And then he invites me to just help turn that person's gaze a little bit away from second things to the first thing. What does that look like in the midst of the pressure, the internal pressure people feel, but the external pressure? I mean, is that way of doing ministry realistic in this day and age? I don't think it's ever been different in over two millennia of Christians seeking to become more like Christ, to position themselves as Jesus positioned himself, to practice disciplines because the heavy gravity of what's going on around us at any moment is enormous. I want to keep my eyes focused on the first thing, on what Jesus said is true. Let's go to the other side. I've got this. It's going to get bumpy. I'm in the boat with you. It's going to be all right. Trust me. And I want to learn to keep my eyes focused there. And I can't do it except for two things. First, is my own practice of the disciplines that keeps me focused. Otherwise, I'm going to get sucked down into the weeds. I will. I just will. And the second thing is community. I absolutely depend on the companionship of, of people who are working like I am to keep first things first. And if they see me starting to spin a little bit, they have permission to speak into my life and they can say, maybe I'm kind of, it just seems like you're a little bit off. Are you okay? I'm seeing you being a little less patient with people. Are what's going on in you? And they help me recognize when I've when I've been triggered by stuff even before I do. 
So I need people like that. I'm hearing a number of things, but this, you know, rather than giving in to the franchise mentality, first mm-hmm. things yeah. with a sort of vigilance first first. there, having a community. And I love that for all these years, gathering with other failed pastors, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Supporting each other. <laughs> and then this refusing to go down the road, looking at things that are not important. And I'm thinking of when you asked Dallas if he sins, could you share with folks the answer he gave you? Yeah. Dallas Willard was one of the most humble and centered people I've ever met. He, He seemed indefatigable. He could be in a situation that was um, troubling to others, and he just seemed to be totally calm inside. And so I asked him one time, he had just, it was just a couple of us, we were having a conversation, and I, I said, Dallas, you seem so settled, you seem so at peace. Do you ever struggle with sin? Do you struggle with temptation? And Dallas kind of laughed at first, and then he realized I was serious. And he smiled and he said, oh, yes. But he said, I have learned to know myself so well that when I see temptation coming around the curve in the mountain road and heading down toward me, I turn my back and I don't show it hospitality. I remember nodding thoughtfully like, Mm, that's very wise, Sensei, you know. (laughs) I I remember thinking that. And in my mind, I I also thought, I don't know what he just said. I don't understand (laughs) one word of what he said. So, you know, you have things like that, that you feel like the Lord has given you. And it it was just, that was the whole conversation we had that you kind of carry with you. And I thought, what, I wonder what he meant. And I think now, you know, it's good to get a few miles under your feet. I think now what Dallas was saying is that he had become familiar with what his triggers were, with what the things were that could knock him off balance. And there aren't a lot of things, and they're very unique to each one of us. They're tied to wounds or things that have happened or unfortunate things, hard things. And we have made up our mind, I will never experience that again. Now, whether we're consciously aware of it, we begin to live our lives that way. Well, Dallas had asked the Spirit to reveal to him his wounds and his areas of vulnerability and the areas where he would have a temptation to immediately shift over into a coping pattern to feel better or protect himself or whatever. And he saw that as being something that pulled him away from being sensitive to Jesus. So he learned not to show hospitality, not to host negative thoughts, not to host complaint, not to host judgmental thoughts. And as I applied that to myself, I thought, oh, I understand that. I I do understand that. A thought comes into my mind or somebody just said something that offended me. And then I immediately shift into a defense position. And a whole bunch of stuff comes with that. Coping patterns, language, reaction, uh, making meaning out of what just happened. I spent quite a few years with the therapist. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. I'm 
very positive about therapy, as well as a spiritual director. They are not the same person. But my therapist said to me one time, uh, Mimi, what do you think it would look like for you to really be healthy, spiritually healthy? And I said, oh, well, I wouldn't struggle with sin anymore. See where my question for Dallas came from. I wouldn't struggle with sin anymore. And my therapist smiled at me and he said, oh, Mimi, you're always going to be triggered by something. You're always going to be tempted by something. Health is when you close the gap between when something happens and you're triggered by it and when you respond. The healthier you get, the shorter that distance comes. And I immediately thought about Dallas. I thought, ah, that's what he was trying to say. He saw it. He knew what it was. He knew he didn't want to go there. And he turned his back on it. He didn't host it. He didn't sit down to have a cup of coffee and talk it over. He didn't invite it into his house for dinner. He didn't give it a room and a place to stay. He didn't. He chose to not listen to that, not pay attention to it as real as it might feel. He did not host it. So I think that I appreciate you bringing that up because that one little conversation really helped me to think we're going to be confronted by these things. We're going to be offended. We're going to be wounded. Hurt people hurt people. So we are going to be hurt. We are going to be criticized. We are going to be misunderstood. But what if I didn't host that woundedness? What if I chose not to take it into myself and show it hospitality? What if I were able to hold it with Jesus so that I can be present to the person involved and not in a way that's destructive or retaliatory. It all goes back to being willing to know yourself. In ministry, this focus on first things and then not giving host to some of these really destructive patterns or places we can go. And it isn't that we haven't experienced trauma. I don't know that there's anybody alive who hasn't had some kind of traumatic experience that in a perfect world never would have happened. But in this world in which we live, you know, I, I look at Revelation 12, it sounds to me like we're living on Alcatraz, you know, a prison island, and we all have on prison uniforms and we all have a number, not a name, and we learn to survive. We learn to form alliances. We learn to protect ourselves. We learn what to watch out for. And we live our lives very defensively. Jesus is calling us into a completely different posture to live today as we will for all eternity in God's heaven. And that means that we're off the island, maybe not physically, but in a more important way. And the uniform is off and we have a robe now that is clean and we have a name, and we are invited to treat others around us in the same way. This person has a name. This person has a story. This person is carrying, as, as Trevor Hudson would say, is sitting by, everyone you meet is sitting by a pool of tears. So how do we live as persons of compassion? How do we live as persons who wants to know somebody's name and story? 
and not just decide who's dangerous and who isn't and form alliances and separate ourselves. I want to live in the kingdom and I want to live in it now. And I think it has to do with allowing the Holy Spirit to change my perspective, to change my mind, like we learn about in Romans 12, and to change it from the inside out. So I have a great deal of hope, but I'm helped to keep my focus there. It's not denial. It's a focus on a greater reality of something the Holy Spirit is doing. And I do that in the company of others who help me keep my focus there and help me know when it has slipped. That's good. You can't do this by yourself. Would you be up for giving a prayer for folks who are in ministry? I would love to. Thanks, Nathan. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, indwelling Holy Spirit, you are hovering around us. You have enclosed us and all of history in this enormous embrace. You have told us that you will not ever, ever break our ability to choose. Free will, you are holding precious. And Lord, we ask you, please, to reveal and heal us from those areas in our lives where we have begun to live like prisoners instead of as people of the light. I ask that you will come alongside this day anyone who is listening and who is struggling or feeling off balance or feeling invisible to you. Lord, I ask that you will reveal yourself in a personal way, that you will help each of us as listeners to experience your life and your love and to be able to rest in this and to know that in the end all shall be well. Give us the courage to look to you Give us the discipline to spend time with you, to listen for your voice, to respond to you, and to be present where you are present in our lives. Give us eyes to see. We ask this in the powerful, enabling name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Nate. Appreciate it. And that was Mimi Dixon, the main speaker at our upcoming pastor's retreat. I believe the event is almost sold out, but if you get on our wait list, we'll be sure to let you know first if we decide to offer the event next year. Mimi's written a wonderful essay exploring some of the ideas we talked about. We'll be running it this week on the website. I've had the opportunity to interview Mimi a number of times and always so good. You can hear her on episode 95. We talk about Julian of Norwich. Episode 128, we explore how fasting is really feasting on God. On episode 135, we talk about how there's always enough. And episode 176 is on Teresa of Avila's interior castle. And we'll put links to these episodes in the show notes. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. I'm grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovari in this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovari.org slash donate. Renovari is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. 
You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute at renovare.org. Encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you find this work helpful, leave us a review. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.